Blueprint for Wealth is brought to you by Zell Law, a law firm located in Reston, Virginia and Savannah, Georgia, serving clients all across the United States on issues of interest in estate planning, business planning, tax, and fiduciary services. If you'd like to know more about us, visit us on the web at zelllaw.com. Today's special educational program is focused on phantom stock plans. So all of you entrepreneurs and business owners out there, listen carefully. Here we go. What's a phantom stock plan? And what is phantom stock? And how does it work? Well, it's basically a form of employee benefit that is referred to as deferred compensation. It's typically referred to as a non-qualified deferred compensation plan. In a phantom stock plan, selected employees, key employees, receive the benefits of stock ownership without actually receiving ownership of the stock. But it's worth money, just like real stock. So it has value, and the value rises and falls with the company's actual stock or whatever the company is valued at if it's a privately held company and not a publicly traded company. In the end, the employees are paid out of the profits after some predetermined event or time. Phantom stock has lots of benefits to those who participate. The managers and key employees get to act like managers because they're incentivized to stay with the company. This is a long-term incentive, so it instills loyalty in the managers and key employees. It gives them a head start on their business succession planning, and it's not a qualified plan. Qualified plans are governed by ERISA, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. And by virtue of being covered by ERISA, there are many reporting and filing requirements. Phantom stock plans don't have those requirements, but they also lack the income tax advantages of qualified plans. For example, an employer who sponsors a qualified plan gets a deduction for payments into the plan, but the employee doesn't have to recognize income until they actually withdraw the benefits from a trust that holds the plan contributions. There are no formal valuations or audits that are required for phantom stock plans, unlike qualified plans. And most importantly, phantom stock plans are designed to cover key employees and managers. Therefore, they're not allowed to cover the rank and file or the entire population of the company. So the non-discrimination rules that do apply to qualified plans don't apply to phantom stock plans. There's no funding required of phantom stock plans like in qualified plans. In fact, you're not allowed to fund phantom stock plans. Phantom stock plans have the following characteristics. First, it's a binding contract between the company and the employees to pay out these benefits if the employee satisfies the requirements of the contract. Terms and conditions, however, vary from plan to plan. And the, these types of plans typically require financial statement disclosure and may require recognition of compensation expense, meaning that it will reduce the net income of the company by the value of the plan benefits being accrued. By contrast, in the tax context, a, 
a phantom stock plan does not generate a deduction until the actual payment is made. So there are big timing differences for tax and financial reporting purposes. In phantom stock plans, you have different participation rights. The, the participant might participate in the entire value of the equity allocated to the phantom stock. They only might participate in the appreciation above a certain level after they join the company, or they can participate in income and profits. And some plans provide for hybrids of all of these benefits. Who gets to participate in a phantom stock plan? And how do they participate? Well, key employees and managers are really the only ones supposed to participate in a phantom stock plan. This allows the plan to qualify for a special exemption under the Department of Labor rules called the Top Hat Exemption. A letter has to be filed within 120 days of implementing the plan with the Department of Labor, and it's a very simple filing, unlike what's required in a qualified plan. Units are awarded either based on past service, based on the position of the individual with the company, usually a high-ranking individual or a key employee who's very important to the success of the company, or based on performance. How did they do? Did they earn the benefit under the plan? Then they can be awarded the benefit under the plan. Vesting is also an important component. You hear about vesting both in terms of qualified plans and in stock option plans. Well, they might be time-based vesting. So if an employee has three-year vesting, they may be able to vest in one-third of the phantom units every year for three years. There could also be cliff vesting after a period of time. Some plans allow for the individual who receives the benefit to vest immediately upon award. And others yet require performance metrics to be met before a phantom unit can be awarded or vested. In a change of control situation, there may actually be a payout and investing could be accelerated on a change in control. Some key issues to consider that usually arise in structuring phantom stock plans. What are the triggering events that either cause the individual to forfeit the plan benefits or receive the plan payments? Let's say somebody's terminated from employment with cause, which is defined in the plan. They've done something really, really bad, and therefore they may be required to forfeit their rights to the benefits under the plan entirely. What happens if the individual is terminated without cause, as it's defined in the plan? Or they leave with good reason. In some cases, they may still might be required to forfeit the benefit, in others, they could be allowed to keep the benefit of the phantom units. Yet, if they're terminated without cause, I've seen plans and I've written plans that have varying incentives depending on what the situation is. So if they're terminated without cause, they may still get a reduced payment based on net book value or some other metric that's less than the real fair market value of the shares, or they may be allowed to hold on to their units and cash out and get full fair market value when the company is sold. Plans need to consider when somebody resigns. Again, they may forfeit their rights, they may keep their rights. They may get a reduced payout equal to net book value or they may get full fair market value. It really depends on the employer. If there's a sale of the company, many plans provide for the acceleration of vesting on 
the sale of the company, even though the individual may have just received the plan benefits, the phantom unit benefits. And they should usually participate in a pro rata share of the net proceeds received by the shareholders in the company on the sale of the company. Phantom plans also build in provisions to deal with the death of a plan participant, disability, and retirement. Payouts occur and are structured in different ways under different plans. So you might see plans that pay out over several years, and it's stated in the plan that, say, upon retirement from employment, you might receive a payout of your phantom unit benefits over five or ten years. In other cases, the plans may be modified to allow for acceleration of benefits or other events. But in all cases, these plans must comply with the rigorous requirements of Internal Revenue Code Section 409A and its regulations under that code section. Those regulations and that section are very difficult to comply with, so make sure you're consulting with a qualified tax professional who understands those rules. And again, if there's a change in control, there may be a payout either upon the change in control of the company, the sale, merger, acquisition of the company, or within a certain period of time after that. Here are the reasons to use phantom stock. They're uncomplicated. Phantom units are only paid out if the employee meets certain terms under the phantom unit award agreement or the plan. And I use the term units and shares they're equivalent. It really depends on how you define them under the plan. Phantom unit holders don't have voting rights like shareholders. So they can't block the company from taking certain actions like shareholders might be able to. And importantly, shareholders who have the right to receive an information about the company and inspect the books and records, that rule does not apply to phantom unit holders. They have no such rights. Yet they remain invested in the success of the company because they can participate either in the profits or the upside of the value of the company as it grows. Phantom units are less, less expensive to uh, offer, and phantom unit plans, phantom stock plans, are much less expensive to implement than, say, employee stock ownership plans, ESOPs. And they offer more flexibility. Privately held companies use them. Publicly traded companies use them. Small companies use them. Large companies use them. And it really doesn't matter what type of entity you are. You can be an LLC, a limited liability company, an S-Corp or a C-Corp, and you can have a phantom unit plan. Most importantly, taxes are not imposed on the recipient generally until they receive a payout under the plan. If you want more information on how to implement and draft and structure a phantom unit plan, give us a call at 571-203-9355 or visit us on the web at Zell Law. I'm Wayne Zell, and thank you so much for listening to Blueprint for Wealth's Educational Moment. Stay tuned for our very special guest. Hi, it's Wayne Zell, and welcome back to Blueprint for Wealth. And today I'm welcoming Matt DeVoe, who is my special guest on Blueprint for Wealth. Welcome, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Matt is a technologist. He's also an entrepreneur, which is what we like to showcase on Blueprint for Wealth. 
He's an international security expert with over 25 years of experience specializing in cybersecurity, counterterrorism, critical infrastructure protection, and intelligence issues. And currently, he's the CEO and founder of OODA, O-O-D-A, LLC. Matt, what does OODA stand for? Uh, UDA is based on an acronym called Observe, Orient, Decide, Act. And for those unfamiliar with the story, there was an Air Force fighter pilot named John Boyd who had an undefeated record, not only in combat, but in uh, competitions with his own peers. And that attracted the attention of the Department of Defense, and they had him come to D.C. in the Pentagon and try and figure out, you know, what makes him tick? You know, how does he differentiate himself and he decided that he, or determined that he has this decision loop that he goes through, the OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, act, and that he was able to go through that decision loop faster than his competitors, and that was what, what was letting him win the dogfight. So it turns out that that kind of orientation from a decision-making perspective applies to a lot of things. It's been applied to technology, cybersecurity, and business. In fact, there have been books written about you know the application of the OODA loop to business itself. So we thought it was a great homage. Uh, I was part of the Disciples of Boyd group when I first was working at the Pentagon in the mid-90s, was very familiar with his work, uh, even got to know some of the family, uh, including his children. So it seemed like an appropriate name for a company that was focused on uh, enabling intelligence, intelligent decisions within the C-suite. Wow, that's a lot for a very short acronym. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fascinating because I had heard it used in business before, but I didn't realize the origin of it, so thank you for that. In 2010, you co-founded a cybersecurity uh, consulting firm called Fusion X. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Fusion X was really designed uh, based on my frustration in the market. I'd been involved in the cybersecurity field for a long time, had been engaged in, in testing and assessment, and I felt like we had sort of lost touch with reality. We had moved into compliance mode uh, and a lack of creativity. And at the end of the day, the cyber attackers that were targeting you know, these global institutions, and we had eight of the top 10 banks in the world as customers and the largest oil companies and telecommunications and social networks, uh, the, the creativity or the threat actor perspective just wasn't there. So we built a very special purpose boutique consulting firm that was designed to emulate the most sophisticated attackers and more importantly, operationalize the attack. So if we were targeting your bank from the perspective of sophisticated Russian organized crime trying to steal money, we would do so in the same way that they would do it, and then we would actually operationalize. We would take the money out of the bank and see when it was detected and how efficient your response was. And then, of course, we were able to go and work with our clients to remove and reduce the attack surface that we had identified. So it really was, you know, we like to describe it as a very form, a form of an advanced cyber sparring partner. Uh, if you're going to fight Mike Tyson, do you want to spar against a static punching bag or a real <laughs> attacker that can emulate what he can do? We served as that real attacker. So uh, the question I had for you on that was, how did you know what the hackers were doing? How did you know how they were approaching the big banks and other financial institutions, and for that matter, pretty much every major business in the United States? Yeah, it's, it's an area where I had at that point already, you know, 15 to 20 years of experience understanding what the attackers are doing, 
working at the response level, not only with the private companies, but at the national strategic uh, in the national security community. Uh, I had uh, helped build two of the most prominent cyber threat intelligence companies in the world. So we had a really good handle uh, on what the attackers were doing. Uh, and in fact, myself and my co-founder, Tom Parker, we had written a book previously uh, that was called Cyber Adversary Characterization that looked at exactly that. How do you determine who is attacking you and then the sophistication of the techniques that they use in targeting you? So how are you using the technology that you guys have mastered today? What are you doing today in terms of helping folks avoid cybersecurity problems that are rampant in our society? Yeah, a lot of what we do today, it, it really is designed around helping companies uh, address kind of the most sophisticated problems that they have. Uh, that, you know, is identifying what that really sophisticated attack surface is. Maybe it's the emulation of a nation state. A lot of them understanding how to manage this risk. One thing that people forget is that cyber risk is a risk like other risks that the business has to manage. And you have appropriate levels of resourcing. Uh, you have to understand what the impact would be. You'd have to understand how the controls that you're putting in place are reducing your risk. So we also spend a lot of time helping clients understand how to appropriately manage cyber risk. You know, we don't like dealing with the companies with the unlimited budget or the companies with zero budget, but really the ones that say, well, I understand I'm at risk. How do I put the most appropriate measures in place? And then we do a lot as well on the growth and strategy space. We're working with other cybersecurity companies to advance their solutions, their approaches, uh, help them uh, be better tuned in the market to address what we see as some of the, the vacuums or the technology gaps that need to be addressed. What happened to FusionX? You were there for about five years? Yeah, we were five years and we were acquired by Accenture. Uh, mm -hmm. And then upon acquisition, I became the head of Accenture's global cyber defense practice, mm -hmm. which for me was a lot of fun. I was you know, a small to mid-sized company guy. And for Accenture to say, okay, take you know the largest element of our security practice and go run with it, you know, kind of build it in your image. Uh, for me, a it was it was great that Accenture would take that kind of risk on an entrepreneur. But for me, it was fun to see how my skills applied to a big company environment. How did you get into cybersecurity? Where did you Where did your career start? Where Where did you your passion for all of this develop? Yeah, I had a passion for technology early on. I grew up in a very rural area uh, in the, the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. Uh, got exposed to you know a computer early on. It was actually interesting. Uh, I actually was educated through sixth grade in a one-room schoolhouse. And there were 12 students in that schoolhouse in grades K through six. A uh, new kid moved to town and it was you know always interesting when you had a new kid move to a small town like that. And we were always out, you know, hunting and fishing and doing things that you do when you live in the country. And he had a, a Commodore 64 computer that had been given to him. And he was interested in trading that Commodore 64 for a hunting rifle. So I traded him. And that was kind of my, you know, once I got that computer in front of me and I had the ability to program it, that for me started the spark. What's interesting is he later went on to have a very distinguished career in the Navy SEALs. And I went on to be a technologist and cybersecurity guy. So you talk about intersections in time that are transformative for both parties. It's certainly one of them. So the first rifle that he learned how to shoot as a Navy, before he became a Navy SEAL, was the one that you gave that I, him. Yep, absolutely. That's, so, that's fascinating. Yeah, it was this great intersection where it sent us on completely different trajectories. So. And you went to St. Michael's College in Vermont after that. 
Um, tell me a little bit about that experience and how you honed your cybersecurity expertise, technology expertise, really, uh, in that environment. Yeah, it really was at St. Michael's that I you know, came up with this idea that cybersecurity was going to be a national security risk. I mean, if you think back to wow. the early 1990s, it wasn't something that we talked about. And I was a hacker, you know, I had built programs and in the summer I wrote software for companies, kind of very early days um, of technology development I mean, point of sale systems and inventory systems, those sorts of things didn't even exist at the time, right? So in the summer I was writing those for auto part shops and gas stations and things of that sort. And I also was in touch, you know, with the hacker community and I saw that the systems that were out there, whether it be a Bell telephone company or a government or even a bank or academic institution, they were constantly being compromised. And I had this aha moment where I said, hey, listen, this technology is becoming increasingly important. There's no doubt in my mind, you know, the internet hadn't been commercialized yet, but you could see that coming. Uh, it is inherently vulnerable. And then the political scientist in me, national security studies guy said, if that's the case, adversaries are going to exploit that. And so I started writing on that topic. I started uh, writing essays and semester papers and submitting to conferences. And that really was the touch point for my career where I combined the two issues that I had, national security studies and computer science slash hacking, uh, into an approach to say, basically, there's an emerging market here. There's an emerging risk. And anywhere that there's an emerging risk means that there's an associated emerging market uh, with that. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of my aha moment. Did you, is that about when you decided to found the Terrorism Research Center? That happened right after I got out of grad school. Uh, I went from St. Michael's to the University of Vermont. I uh, did my graduate thesis uh, that was entitled National Security in the Information Age. Uh, and a lot of the points that I wrote back then, you know, over uh, 25 years ago, still uh, ring true today. So it's amazing to kind of go through and look at the issues and the strategies that I identified and kind of how true it was to the future that, that developed. Um, left grad school and came to Washington, D.C., and my first job was actually uh, as a contractor for SEIC, building the first uh, hacking team for the U.S. Department of Defense. And while I was there, because of my national security chops, you know, I had a master's degree in political science with a focus on national security, I was constantly getting pulled into these high-level war games, presidential commissions, you know, other things that were dealing with this emerging topic. And again, if you think back 25 years ago, it really was something that was just, the, the wave was just starting to form around cybersecurity. Uh, as a result, I met a couple of colleagues and we started publishing papers. Mm -hmm. uh, we wrote a, a paper that was published in an academic journal called Information Terrorism, Can You Trust Your Toaster?, uh, it was the, the beginning of a, a long line of having interesting, compelling titles for me. And we got frustrated in that process because it took so long for um, the journal, it was at St. Andrew's Journal, to actually publish the article. You know, it was peer review, and then you go back and forth, and you write it, and then it seems like nine to 12 months later, it's actually in print. And we said, let's just circumvent that. Let's create a website and let's do this collaborative research and publish information. And that was the formation of what was the early days of the Terrorism Research mm -hmm. Center. It was a, a side hustle labor of love, mm -hmm. but I had permission directly from Bill Beister, the CEO of SAIC at the time, uh, to work on it, uh, you know, as long as it didn't impact my 
work at SAIC. Sure. Uh, and then over time, we got so much momentum with the Terrorism Research Center that I hopped out to uh, make that my full-time endeavor and grew that as an independent company. So today, you have Uda. The, um, the question I have for you is, do you have time for anything else outside of work? What do you do outside of work? What's your passion? Are you still hunting and fishing? I still go up uh, and go hunting and fishing, go up every November to hunt with my dad and my brother, my uncles, my cousin, uh, for certain, do some fishing. I was up fishing in the spring, mm -hmm. uh, again, with my dad and my brother. Uh, I have a, a three kids, so I'm very active in their lives. The youngest is a hockey player. I was a uh -huh. hockey player, so a hockey coach uh, for his team, uh, his travel team, and then I coach the middle school team, so I keep busy there. And then I'm very engaged in the community. Uh, I taught for 14 years at Georgetown University. Really enjoyed that. This past semester, I, I took an adjunct position at Columbia University out in New York wow. to teach. Uh, and then a what lot of other... We were actually teaching a, a class on cyber business risk. So a little bit different bent than what I was teaching at Georgetown, but mm -hmm. getting the students to understand, again, that this is a risk, what does a threat environment look like, and what are the tools available for you to manage it? Uh, really hoping to groom a next generation of chief information security officers. And the business risks that we're facing today, all of us as small firms or big firms, how would you characterize that as compared to five years ago, 10 years ago? Yeah, it's interesting in that we've done a pretty poor job of eliminating the risks that existed five to ten years ago. Right? So that's an area where I'm hopeful we'll, we'll make some traction. But at the same time, we've had new risks that have manifested themselves through you know a variety of different means. A great example is ransomware. I worked my yes. first ransomware case probably 16 or 17 years ago. But back then, to try and pay the ransom, they wanted you to try and move money into the Russian equivalent of PayPal and no U.S. bank would transfer money into that system, and it was it was impossible to do. And then now we have the emergence of the cryptocurrency environment, and you have a baked-in ecosystem that can help facilitate those payments. So we see where you know ransomware now is a much more vibrant threat for a lot of these organizations, large and small. Uh, uh, no, go ahead. This is uh, it's fascinating to me. Um, it seems that the emergence of cryptocurrency, which is potentially the future of foreign currency and U.S. currency, um, also has a lot of uh, problems associated with it, including the ability of criminals and cybersecurity hackers uh, to take advantage of that medium to take advantage of the rest of the world. Do you think that this is something that needs to be regulated or can be regulated? I think it would be very tough to regulate it um, with regards to just the, you know, the regulatory arbitrage associated with the international nature of cryptocurrencies and what I regulate in one environment, you know, in other environments won't be regulated. We see that even with things as simple as computer crime laws, right? We can't get criminal prosecution of threat actors in Russia, even though they're stealing money from U.S. institutions or shutting down pipelines in the United States with ransomware attacks. So how do we protect our infrastructure from future attacks? I mean, it seems to me that the next world war is on the cybersecurity front and not in, on, the, on the ground or in the air. I, th I think that's true. So we've got a lot to do to build some resiliency. You know, really the best defense against a threat like ransomware is resiliency. Having strong backups, being able to detect things early, maybe engaging in new technologies like deception technologies to get early warning mm -hmm. when attacks take place. Uh, and we have to figure out kind of the, the international, you know, uh, affairs element of this as well. 
there has to be some standards of care. There has to be some international agreements with regards to, you know, what can be attacked uh, or what justifies, you know, being targeted from a cyber espionage perspective via something that would be considered an attack on our critical infrastructure. So there's going to be a lot of, I think, international political dialogue as well to, to help try and move us into an environment where everybody recognizes that, you know, the table stakes are high for all of us. What's the next frontier for cybersecurity? How do we uh, how do we anticipate what the next threat is and what the next hack potential is? Yeah, what's really going to get interesting is you know I focus a lot of my time on the risk to artificial intelligence and data yes. science. We have you know every Fortune 500 company that I work with has dedicated budgets and personnel trying to bring data science and more loosely you know we can argue for days over the definition of artificial intelligence, but they're trying to bring artificial intelligence into the enterprise. That, to me, represents a, a risk similar to what happened when we commercialized the internet or when we decided to put all of these internet of things in our, in our homes without an appropriate security model for them. We know that AI is gonna be a key element of business moving forward, so we really need to be taking the steps to try and secure it today. So when I think about future risks, that's definitely one of the top ones that I try to address. And that is not just the infrastructure of those systems being secure, but that the data that they're using to train those systems uh, is appropriate and robust and hasn't been subjected to manipulation, right. uh, and that the algorithms as well. You know, we're going to see adversaries that are both human and other AI elements that are trying to impact the performance of those algorithms. So that's a key one. There are other issues too where you know it's hard to determine where we're going to fall with regards to the development of quantum computing. Uh, the Chinese just announced a quantum computer that you know dwarfs in scale the size of what was previously thought to exist. That raises lots of interesting questions about security and secrets. We use encryption today to secure a lot of our information and our secrets. And now we need to build models that say, okay, in the event of a quantum computing and the ability to crack this encryption, or even target that quantum computing against breaking the encryption in, in elements of blockchains mm -hmm. associated with digital currencies, what does that mean? How do we build quantum resistant cryptography, which is possible? But you know, my I think the biggest risk, I've identified two that are kind of technology risks. The biggest risk that we have is not talking about those and addressing them now, right? To just kind of move forward with the technologies and look for the benefits without thinking through the risk. Uh, and I think it's, you know, we need to make sure we pause and, and have a dialogue around what is that risk? How do we secure it? How do we build that security in from the beginning so that we don't find ourselves in a tough spot a decade from now? Who are your ideal clients at UDA? Who do you seek out or who seeks you out today? For, for yeah, it's a combination, uh, you know, Fortune 500 on the, the consulting side that want to understand how to manage these risks, and then a whole variety of companies on the advisory side where we help with the growth and market and strategy on building their business. We work with some startups that are 15 people in size and some publicly traded multi-billion uh, public companies. So uh, it's a very wide variety, you know, depending on the problem that they're trying to solve or where they sit in the market. Last question. If you were to give advice to a young entrepreneur who's trying to start up a new business, whether it's cybersecurity, uh, risk assessment, or you know, protection, or something else, what would be the advice that you would give them today? 
I would say to make make sure that they're staying true to risk management principles, right? That they understand the threat, that they understand how those threats are going to impact the businesses that they're working with, and that they're building solutions or offering services that kind of move the needle in that regard. Uh, I see, you know, a lot of approaches that that want focus on wanting to be the silver bullet. You know, been in this space for over 25 years. There are no silver bullets. You need to build meaningful solutions that actually help us control some of the risks uh, and the the impacts of those risks, you know, the high consequence impact. When I was at Fusion X, I used to tell our clients, we're going to focus on the catastrophic and the consequential risks. Those are the ones that we need to look at first. And then once we feel comfortable with that, we can move on to some of the more, you know, the differentiated residual pools of risk that exist in the enterprise. So stay true to that focus that cyber is a risk that we need to manage uh, like we manage other risks and build tools and services that actually help to do that. So it's not just an opportunity to make money. It's an op- it's a risk that we must all deal with when we're starting up or managing or maintaining our businesses. Absolutely. I mean, there's lots of money to be made, lots of great success. I'm very happy with the success I've had in the cybersecurity market and others are achieving success all the time. But there is a national security mission associated with it as well. We need to improve the cybersecurity of the government and the companies and the citizens in this nation in order to ensure our future economic and national security. Thank you. Matt DeVoe, this has been fascinating. I, I, I could spend an hour or two hours just talking about this with you, learning from you. You're truly an expert in the cybersecurity realm, and uh, it, it's been a pleasure having you on Blueprint for Wall. Thanks for being our special guest today. Absolutely. My pleasure. And thanks for listening to Blueprint for Wealth. Tune in next time because you may not hear somebody as great as Matt DeVoe, but you're going to hear somebody really fantastic who's an entrepreneur who can tell us their story about their success and how they achieved it. Thanks for listening. I'm Wayne Zell, and have a great week.